Good evening. What it's nice to look out there and see all your faces. When you heard that I was going to get to speak tonight, you still came back. So thank you. But if you would, all kidding aside now, if you would take your Bibles and turn to the second chapter of the book, well, the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to read from verses 8 through 13. Starting at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached by my gospel, for which I suffer bound in change as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Let us pray. Beloved Father, as we open your word tonight, I pray that it would truly go forth and accomplish your purposes as you have stated in your word. I pray that in my study that I've been faithful and I so pray then that you would use me as a willing vessel to proclaim your word knowing that no man can stand here unless it is by your appointment, by your grace. And so therefore, I thank you for the opportunity. But Father, I know that I need you in the Spirit to lead me through this time, that your word then would be a blessing to these folks tonight. Amen. Though I read verses 8 through 13... We're going to only consider verses 8 and 9 tonight because there is so very much there. It is this packed. And Lord willing, the next time that I have the privilege of coming and bringing God's word, then we will look then at verses 10 through 13 because they too are totally packed with great truth that is so important for us to learn and to understand. But shortly before 1400 BC, as Moses was preparing the children of Israel to enter into the promised land, he gathered them together. And in gathering them together, he started reviewing. In verse chapters 1 through 5, he basically reviewed their most recent history. In other places, he went over the law, the Ten Commandments. He ended the book of Deuteronomy in his review of explaining and warning the children of Israel about blessings if they would follow and obey their God or cursing if they 
disobeyed their God and started following after strange idols as the people in the land of Canaan did. But in chapter 6, we find that he is calling them to remembrance. And he says these words to them, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, who you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands and you shall use them as frontlets in front of your eyes. You shall write them on your doorpost and you shall write them on your gates. And you might wonder, what does this have to do with 2 Timothy 2, verse 8 and 9? Well, in chapter 2, starting in verse 8, Paul is calling Timothy, exhorting Timothy in a loving way to remember. And he is to remember Jesus Christ. In the same vein of of thought. That's what Moses was doing. He wasn't telling them to, I want you to just call back to memory. But as you are walking in the way, as you are sitting down, as you are lying down, as you are doing everything in a daily work way, you are to remember the words that I command you today. And Basically, one could say that hear, O Israel, and we might even be able to say, hear, O people of River City Grace, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is Yahweh. He is our creator, and there is none like him and never shall be again. Why? Because he's eternal. And he is the only one that is eternal. So we come then to this verse 8. And in tonight's message, I've entitled it, Remember. The Apostle Paul here is instructing Timothy the same thing. Remember. But in our passage, he is to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead of the descendant of David, according to to the gospel in verse 8 he says my gospel now hopefully I'll explain a little bit more about what he meant by that in a few minutes for which Paul was suffering bound in change chains in a as a common criminal a malefactor in a Roman prison but then he goes on to say but the word of God cannot be bound. And so that's why I think that when Paul in verse 1 of chapter 2 
encouraged, exhorted Timothy to be strong in the grace that was in Christ Jesus. These are some of the things he had in mind. Even though he reminded him about a faithful soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Have you ever thought that our Lord Jesus Christ exemplified every single one of those illustrations? Jesus Christ was the greatest of all soldiers. Why was that? What did he say he came for? He said, I came to do your will. Read Hebrews. It is written in the volume of the book that I have come to do your will, O Lord. He was so set to do the Father's will that nothing but nothing was allowed in his life to stop him from that very goal. He was the most consummate athlete. You ever think about that? It says that he set his face toward Jerusalem like a flint. He was disciplined. He knew that he was going to be going to the cross. He knew that he was going to have to be suffering, beaten to a pulp, to the place where he was unrecognizable. And yet, what did he do? He endured. He played by the rules. You might think, what do you mean he played by the rules? Well, did he ever sin? No. God, did he, did he fulfill the law perfectly? Absolutely. The perfect, perfect athlete. And you might wonder, well, Sam, how about that farmer? He is also the greatest farmer that ever lived. Is it he who plows? Is it he who plants the seed? Is it he the one who gathers in the fruit? And who are the fruit? Isn't it us? Isn't it we who have been saved by grace that we are the fruit of Christ? Why would he say that we are his body? We are part of him. And so Paul, I think, had this in mind when he was telling Timothy, remember, remember Jesus Christ. And so as we look tonight I hope that we will be that I will be able to share with you three things the supremacy of Jesus Christ the supremacy of the gospel and the supremacy of God's word from these two verses and I think the big picture that that I wanted to try to develop is this Since Jesus Christ, the gospel, and God's word is supreme, we are victorious. We aren't going to be victorious. We are victorious, though we suffer persecution. And that brings us then to to this part, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. In verse 8. And so Timothy was to remember. But he wasn't just to call back from the recesses of his little brain things. This idea of remember. William Barclay puts it this way in his systematic theology. 
The tense of the Greek does not imply one definite act in time, but a continued state which lasts forever. In other words, and these are my words, a continual action. Present, perfect tense that's to carry on and on and on as we lie down, as we walk in the way, as we teach our children, we are to remember the supremacy of Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to the gospel. So as we think about then the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we find that the supremacy of Jesus Christ is revealed in who he is. Who is Jesus Christ? None other than the incarnate Son of God. He is all man. He is all God in one person. I don't understand how that can be. I only know that I've been told from God's word that nothing is impossible for my God. And so therefore I can easily accept the fact that Christ was all human. He was all God, deity. We read these words in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. Who is He? He is the only begotten of the Father. He is the God-man. But He's more than that. Jesus also, in who He is, is the founder and perfecter of our faith, as found in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. And from the book of Colossians in verses 15 through 20, we also see who Jesus is. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By whom all things were created, He was is the creator. He is also the one who holds all things together by the power of His might and His voice. He is also the fullness of the of deity of the Godhead. That's who He is. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's who He is. He is our Redeemer. Jesus also died for our sins once and for all, as stated in 1 Peter 3.18. And so therefore, He is our Savior. No other Savior. There is none. Jesus Christ is the man the man who is our mediator before the throne of God, as noted in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. 
There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So, that's who He is. He is out, he, he is so much, isn't He? My mind cannot comprehend the depth of who He is. But I thank God that what I do know, I can take and treasure in my heart of who Jesus Christ is. And so we see then the supremacy of Christ is revealed in who He is. The supremacy of Christ also is evidenced by His resurrection. I want you to note the power behind the resurrection. We know that the Father, according to Acts 2.24, raised Him from the dead. I also know that the Holy Spirit, as in Romans, the Spirit of God, raised Him from the dead. Romans 8.11 I also know that the Lord Jesus Himself, as part of the Trinity, raised Himself from the dead as God. What does it say in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18? I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down willingly. And since I lay it down, I have power to pick it up again. The power behind the resurrection is our triune God. What an amazing and wonderful thought to have. And as Tony pointed out this morning in that we needed to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead is we aren't to just look back at the resurrection. That resurrection being so absolutely important. But we are to think more than that. Now you may think, well, wait a minute, Sam. Why are we having communion? Because we are called to remember what Jesus did for us when He gave His blood and He gave His body. But we're also to remember that He is not dead. He's alive. I like what Boris Karloff, when he played in Frankenstein, and he was Dr. Frankenstein and he made thought you'd want it and you I don't know if any of you ever saw that old movie but I can see him in my mind and he goes he lives he lives you know he was amazed we're not amazed because our Lord Jesus was brought out from among the dead as Tony brought out this morning death could not hold him Jesus Christ is the only one who has risen from the dead and continues to live. Others have been raised from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus, did He not? Jesus raised the widow's son, did He not? And yet, these died again. He is the first fruits. And so therefore, we see that the evidence is there. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was also prophesied. Psalm 16, verses 8 and 10. 
and also in the book of Acts, uh, verses 22, uh, following some of that which Greg has already read for us. It was prophesied. It says of David that he wasn't talking about himself, but as a prophet, he was talking about Jesus. Who? would rise from the dead or be risen from the dead. And how did he know that? As Peter explained, brothers, sisters, David died. His tomb is here. He's still with us. I can take you to the tomb and I can show you his, well, I started to say his sarcophagus, but I can't pronounce it. I apologize. But you get the point. He's there. Jesus is not. The tomb was empty. And so therefore we see that it was prophesied. Jesus' resurrection is recorded in all four of the Gospels. Each one, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, though they bring out different aspects in, because of their purpose in writing, each one records that. The resurrection of Christ from the dead is attested by the Apostle Paul in chapter 15. Um, what is it he said? That he appeared to Cephas, Peter. He appeared to the other disciples in verse 5. He appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Now, I might say that if one or two people said, I saw Jesus alive and no longer in the grave, you know, I, I might find a way to make their testimony moot and unbelievable. But 500 people? There they, are not that many people that are, you know, disillusioned. None. And so we find this, we find this attested by Paul. Not only that, but after he was ascended into glory, he also appeared. He appeared to Paul as one that was born out of due time. Look at Acts chapter 9. If you look at Acts chapter 7, he appeared to Stephen. When he said, when Stephen, as he, as he was being stoned, he said, I looked up into heaven and I saw the glory and I saw the Son setting, sitting at the right hand of the Father on high. Wow! I mean, folks, that's something to get excited about. Our Christ is not dead. He's alive. And that's the point that Paul is making here. To Timothy, he's alive and sitting at the right hand of the Father on high right at this very moment, interceding for you and me. Next, we find that the supremacy of Christ is authenticated by his lineage. God covenanted with David King David, a man after God's own heart, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there he told David that his descendants 
would sit on the throne, his throne, forever. A greater than David came. A greater than Solomon came. A greater than Jehoshaphat came. A greater than Hezekiah came. A greater than Josiah came. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ who has the right to sit on the throne of David. And so we, we see that. The, the Gospels again, and I think this is so important, in the genealogies of the Lord Jesus, we find two genealogies, one in Matthew and another one in Luke. The one in Matthew traces Jesus through Solomon and his lineage, which is the legal right for Christ to be the accepted one to sit on the throne. The legal right. But in Luke, the genealogy doesn't come through Solomon. It comes through Nathan, another son of David. And in that lineage, it traces down to not Joseph, but to Mary. Therefore, not only does Jesus have the legal right, but he also has the moral right to sit on the throne of David. And he alone is the one that has that privilege. And so we see that then the authentication through his lineage. But now we must move on. And so now, therefore, let's take a look at the supremacy of the gospel. The supremacy of the gospel is found in its source. And who is the source of the gospel? We find that in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. When Paul declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For by it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. The source is God. Notice that word, it is the power. Do you remember what Tony said about the power this morning? I hope you do. Because there is no power like it ever. Not on this earth. Not in all creation. I love the way he said that. Absolute power. You know, Charles Colson said one time, power, absolute power, corrupts absolutely. You know, he found out later that he was wrong. Did you know that? Now, my understanding is when he proclaimed that, that he was not a Christian. But when he was put into prison, I understand that it was there that he, come, he came to know in, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because 
He did not know at the time he said that, that the only one who has absolute power is the Lord God Almighty who is our Creator and there is no corruption whatsoever in Him. And so therefore, we find that God is the source. The supremacy of the Gospel is also revealed in Scripture. In in our classes in SLT, we had to read a book and basically it, it had to do with uh, tracing redemption from beginning to end. And as we looked at that, you know, God promised the gospel right after Adam and Eve sinned when he declared to Satan that the, the, that the, he would raise up a seed from the woman and you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. He will have victory over you. What about in uh, Genesis 12 when God told Abraham that all the, through him all the nations of the world would be blessed? And he re-emphasized that again in, in Genesis chapter 18 as well. We, we can't help but understand that the Scripture reveals the Gospel. We also, Jeremiah, and I'll take a moment to read that. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, we read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell in safety. That is part of the gospel in Scripture. I will finish with this because I can see that I'm getting behind time here. I'm not like Tony. I don't have an hour. Sorry. But Luke chapter 24 Verses 13 through 35, when the Lord was appeared to those men on the road to Emmaus. What does it say about him? It says that he opened the he opened scripture in a way, and starting with Moses and the prophets, he declared everything in scripture what was written about him to these two men. And when their eyes were open after he left them wow I would have loved to have been in that room when it finally dawned on them that their Jesus the redeemer of Israel whom they were looking for and hoping that Jesus would be it is him oh what glory folks what glory and so there's many other scriptures that we could look at uh for the, to see that the scriptures reveal the gospel of Christ. But we then find the supremacy of the gospel is established in the message. And the message of the gospel can be summed, summarized by these words found for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 and 4. And here's what the Apostle Paul said. For I delivered to you 
as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to Scripture. And then the the Apostle Peter pins these words in Acts 4, verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy, Ghost, Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then here is, and there is no salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. And as well as these, 1 Peter 2, 4, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree or on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds we are healed. My, oh my, what a great message. A message that, that took your sin and my sin and removed it as far as east is from the west. Now, do we still sin? Yes, I'm not naive enough to stand up and proclaim that we are perfected yet. But in Christ, in Christ alone, we are, his, we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In our position, God sees us that way. So what a, what a blessing, folks. Something to get excited about. Very excited about. Isn't it amazing that the message of the gospel is so precious that the Apostle Paul was willing to suffer for it as a criminal, a malefactor, having the confidence that nothing could separate him, however, from the love of Christ. Romans 8, 35. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, fam, famine or nakedness or danger or sword For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, no heights, no depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Period. Wow. So great. And Paul ends, verse 9 then, from moving from the supremacy of the gospel to the supremacy of God's word. We read in verse 9 where Paul says, For I, for which I am suffering, bound in change as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. It is not bound. And so we find then that the supremacy of God's word is grounded in 
its author. And who is the author of Scripture? You might say, well, 40 different men over a period of approximately 2,000 years. Mere men. No. Who is the author of Scripture? We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. God is the author of the Bible. Yes, He used men. Men who in the Old Testament we find were moved along by the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, it was God working through them to establish His Word. And so we find that the supremacy of the Gospel, excuse me, secondly then, the supremacy of God's Word is found in its message. Not only in its author, but we find also in its message. And and what is that message in 2 Timothy 3.16? The Word of God is what? It is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we could take that, those words and apply it to all of Scripture because all of Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And if any of you disagree with me, which I'm sure you won't, that means to me that you probably weren't listening to Greg as he was going through the book of Genesis. No? No. All of Scripture is God-breathed. And so, the message, the author, the message, the supremacy of God's Word always accomplishes God's purposes. We find in Isaiah 55.11 that my Word will go forth from me, from my mouth, It shall not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I send it. And again in Isaiah 14, 27, for the Lord of hosts has purposed and who can annul it? In Job 42, 1 and 2, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted it accomplishes everything that God intends it to accomplish and it will continue to do so another thing about the supremacy of God's word is 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 revealed in its effectiveness for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and moral, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him whom we must all give account in Hebrews. Folks, it's effective. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here tonight. Because I would take it as I look out, most of you I know, and I know you love the Lord Jesus. And you are His. It's effective, isn't it? It is absolutely effective. And then the supremacy of God's Word 
can never be bound or eradicated. All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25. Again, almost in the exact same words, Isaiah 40, 7 and 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Jesus said these words to his disciples when he gave, taught them the lesson of the fig tree as well. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not, will not pass away. Though all hell would cause the word of God to be bound, if it could, it would stand anyway. He can't stop it. So I'd like to close with this illustration. And I know I've gone over time. But while in jail in Bedford, England, John Bunyan wrote his most famous book, The Pilgrim's Progress. And it is said that in his cell, he did have a window. But unfortunately, outside this window was a high wall. And so when he looked out, the only thing he could see was that big, ugly, nasty wall. But you know what it is said of him? It said that he would get up by that window and that he would preach God's word. He would preach the gospel. And it is said this, that outside, were hundreds of listeners waiting to hear him preach God's word. Some believers, some not believers. But the point of trying to make folks is that the word of God is not bound and never can be because God won't allow it. Even when there's not Bibles and this is true in some places of our world, and I've heard of it being in China. They don't have a lot of Bibles. But one of the things that they would do is that they would choose a chapter or so forth to memorize from the, the few Bibles they have. And then when they would get together in their churches, their home churches or wherever, they would get up and they would share because they put God's Word to memory. God's Word cannot be bound but there is some application that I'd like to share with you and this there's three of them remember daily that Jesus Christ is alive and is now sitting at the right hand of the father who promised he would never leave us nor forsake us I want you to remember that I also in application since the gospel is the power of God and salvation and in it the righteousness of God is revealed by faith share it with the lost because it's the only power that will bring them to salvation and then last trust 
in the unbound word of God. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. For in it we find the words of life. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I know that there was much here tonight. But we know that we could come before you and take assurance of knowing that our Lord Jesus is supreme. We can take in and hold fast to the fact that your gospel is supreme. And it tells us about our Lord. And we also know that your word is supreme, unfailing, unbound. Oh God, how marvelous, how marvelous you are in all your ways. And so unto you we give glory and honor and praise tonight. Amen.